it's good to see all of you. And I, Jason mentioned that we were able, to, I was able to get J to know Jason better actually during COVID because we we're doing this triad of, of Confluence pastors, uh, one here in Brooklyn and Jason and myself up in Boston, just trying to encourage each other and figure out how, how God was leading in a really confusing and disorienting uh, time. And there's two things I really love about Jason, just a quick quick shout out to Jason, is one, he's a very thoughtful man. And if you ever get a chance to follow him on social media or Facebook, you'll know he's a writer. Um, and his thoughtfulness comes out in his writing and the way he causes us to think about the church and what it means to be followers of Jesus and is transparent about his own vulnerabilities and questions, um, which I find helps me engage with God more and understand better what does it mean to actually follow God uh, authentically. And uh, the th second thing is he's a man that's ori oriented around the call of God on his life. Now, how many of you know that we all have a call of God on our life, that before we were even born, God had prepared good works for us that we were going to do? And so uh, it's important that we learn to be oriented around the calls that God has placed on our life. And uh, Jason's call is somewhat more visible because he's a pastor and he's a public He's in a public role a lot of the time, but what really impresses me about him is that he's oriented around that call. And because he knows that calls come from God, he orients his life and his, uh, his relationships towards God and towards that call. I really appreciate uh, that about you, Jason, and you would be a guy I would want, I would want to follow and, and get more time with. All right, so that was just to make Jason feel better about being a pastor, and now we'll get on to the good stuff. Uh, but no, I really mean that. When we were worshiping and we were singing that song, Lord, I need you, I hadn't planned to say, say this, but um, I just felt the Holy Spirit just kind of put on my heart uh, this question, and it was to me, but I think it's to all of us as well, which is, have, have you ever felt like giving up? And I, I know there's been a number of moments in my life, particularly in the last two years, where as a pastor I felt like giving it up. Uh, and when we're at a point where we feel like we need to give up, I think that is at the moment where we can truly sing or we can truly pray or we can truly confess to God, Lord, I need you. Because when things are going well and we feel like we're firing on all cylinders and we're being successful and our relationships are going well, a lot of the time we don't feel our need for God. And that's kind of the spirit of the West is to lull us into a kind of sense of complacency that things are going well enough or things are going good enough that we can kind of take it easy and we don't feel a need for God. But I think one of the things God's been doing uh, during this pandemic and the world in general over the last few years is shaking things and bringing us to a place where we feel like tapping out, where we feel like giving up so that we'll say, Lord, I need you. Um, and to be a disciple of Jesus is to need Jesus. I want to look today about uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how being a disciple of Jesus means we learn to engage with the world the way Jesus did. Um, and in order to, to, to get there, we, we first have to understand that in order to engage with the world in the way Jesus did, we're going to first need to have an encounter with Jesus. 
we're going to first have to realize that the way he engaged with the world was in a way that the world truly needed. In a world that there is a lot of people calling out, like, they're not calling it out to God, but they're expressing their need in so many different ways. They're expressing their need in their cry for justice. They're expressing their need in their cry for relationships. They're expressing their need in their cry for political change. And in so many ways, uh, people are expressing their need. And now it's not always to God. But when Jesus came, he knew how to meet the needs of the people he was around. He was like a master at this. He, he kind of intuitively know, knew he was led by the Spirit in such a way that when people came to him, sometimes they came to him with certain things, with certain requests, and he wouldn't give them those requests, and he'd meet a different need in their life. So Zacchaeus came with a need. He just, his need was he just wanted to see Jesus. And so he climbs up in a tree to get a view with him. But what Jesus knew was what, that Zacchaeus needed a friend. So he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. That's kind of the genius of Jesus in its simplest form. He was always anticipating what the deepest needs of the particular person he was relating to was, and then he would meet that need in some way. And the, one of the questions I would have for you this morning is, what needs has Jesus met in your life? In fact, take, take a moment to think about that for a moment. Because you're probably here this morning either because you're looking for God or a, a Christian community to meet some type of need you feel in your life, or because Jesus has met a need in your life in the past and you want to follow him, you want to worship him for that. And just take a moment to think, What's a need God's met in my life? What's a prayer he's answered? What a, what's a thing he's changed in me? What's a sin even that he's forgiven? Because it's likely you follow him because he's met a need in your life. Uh, so a while ago, uh, a number of years ago, I had been church planting for a number of years, and I was at a point where I was ready to tap out. I was ready uh, to give up, and my church was able to give me a couple of months off uh, one summer for a sabbatical. It's about seven or eight years uh, into to church planting in Boston. And I went away, and I really just wanted, like, a word from God, like something that was going to change what I was encountering in church planning and the obstacles and the challenges I was coming up against. And um, for the first month, I basically just, I had a couple retreats planned where I went away by myself and I basically just slept the whole time. Like I, I never, I didn't realize how exhausted uh, I was and I would spend some time with God, but there was, I was just kind of like reorienting, recalibrating my life and I didn't really know what, know what I was doing. And then I got into month two and I was like, oh no, there's only one month left. And I'm like, I'm not, I feel like I haven't made any progress in figuring out like what God wants me to do, like what what the word of the Lord is. And I had two more uh, personal retreats coming up, if I'm remembering correctly. And the first one, it, there wasn't too much. And then the third one, it was uh, one of my last ones. And I was hiking up this mountain and I was just asking God, it's like, God, what what what's the word when I'm coming back? Like, what are you trying to say to me? And I had, you know, when you're church planning, you have all these strategies and things that you're trying to do and accomplish. And I felt the Lord just speak to me, just put um, these words on my heart. He just said, live like Jesus. I was like, sounds like, sounds good. When I was, wh uh, when I was growing up, 
they had these bracelets. If you grew up in Christian subculture, what would Jesus do? I was like, it kind of sounds a lot like that, live like Jesus, what would Jesus do? I don't know how original that is. I like live like Jesus better than what would Jesus do personally because it's more forward. It's more uh, like it feels like you're going somewhere um, instead of just trying to make a decision about each one of your activities. But anyways, so, but I did feel like there was something on that. Like, you just know you, at times, if you've had these types of moments with God where you feel like, you know what, I, f- I really feel like that's God, and you can't really describe why, but it just felt that way. And so I kind of hung on to that, um, and I came back to my church. I was like, guys, I just feel like God wants us to learn how to live our lives like Jesus did, and I don't really know how to do that, but let's let's try. And since then, that has become kind of my guiding star, my the motto for my life. And it actually has become really helpful because when things are going well in life, when you have a lot to share, when you have a lot of energy, when you feel like you have a lot to give, you can live like Jesus and, and live out of that abundance. But the, the other thing is when things are really challenging and you don't know what to do, it doesn't change what you're called to do. You can still live like Jesus. You can still love your neighbor. You can still love your enemy. You can still share your story with other people um, about what Jesus has done in your life. And I found like no matter what my circumstance was, there was always an opportunity to live like Jesus. And whether my church was doing great or it felt like my church was fragmenting or it felt like my church was going through whatever challenges it might fit, there was always opportunities to live like Jesus no matter how my church was doing and no matter how I was doing. Now, no doubt there are some challenges to living out this kind of rule of life or this guiding star, live like Jesus. For one, uh, at least for me, I'm not a Jewish rabbi. So that's kind of the first hurdle to overcome in living like Jesus. The second thing is I have four children and a wife. Jesus didn't have any of those things. So right away, the, the goal of living like Jesus, and if that's what, you know, becomes the motto or a way you can think about living out the Christian life, you can run into some challenges pretty quickly with that. Um, and if we look at the church Uh, the Big C Church, um, the body of Christ, um, we can see that we're not always doing a very good job of living like Jesus, right? You know, you're just not running around our cities, bumping into people who are like doing things that Jesus did, healing the sick, uh, befriending the sinner, all these different types of things. And so it feels like, as, as I thought about this, man, like we're not doing a very good job of this, and I'm not doing a, a very good job of this. And a friend of mine recently noted and this is not like a scientific thing, but he says, if David, it feels like there's three different types of Christians out there right now. Now, these aren't the only Christians, but these three types are out there. Um, and he said there's Christians, and, and each one of these types of Christians engages with the world in a different way. And just a headliner here, uh, a note up front, is like, None of these ways are the way Jesus engaged with the world. And he says there's this type of Christian, the first type, it seems like they're always judging the world. Uh, in this type of uh, a Christian, they expect non-Christians or non-believers to behave like Christians would. And so they expect the world around them who's not Christian, that doesn't believe in uh, Jesus, to hold the same moral values and behaviors that Jesus asks us for, which seems kind of unrealistic and counterintuitive. Uh, It seems like these types of Christians are more comfortable communicating what they are against rather than what they are for. And if you haven't met those types of Christians yet, they're on social media. You can find them there. But don't go looking for them. It's a waste of your time. Uh, They're often perceived as being uh, uh, hateful or having a disdain for others. 
And one other characteristic that I put in here is that they tend to expect others to listen to them, but they don't listen to other people. So, I don't know. My guess is we all have, like, some people came to mind. All right, so there, there's that type of Christian out there. And then um, there's a second type of Christian, he said, that I, I see out there. And these Christians, the way they engage with the world is they don't, they're not judging the world so much as they're trying to avoid the world. And their value is, is holiness, which is not a bad value. They really want to live lives set apart unto God. They want to reflect his character. Uh, but the way they relate to, to the world is kind of to fear the world. i got to get out of the world. i got to avoid the world so the world doesn't contaminate me. And uh, this type of a Christian uh, kind of finds themselves most comfortable in kind of Christian subculture, only listen to Christian music, uh, only participate in uh, Christian act activities. Uh, in their zeal for holiness, they isolate themselves from the world. They're never uh, in the world. Perhaps they only, they only have Christian friends or very few non-Christian friends. They, they only hang out with like-minded people that reinforce their values. And it's, it's as if they've abandoned the world instead of remaining in it. We know that Jesus, though, didn't ask us to leave the world. He said, I've prayed for you because you're going to remain in the world, but he expects us to be distinct in the world. So the holiness thing isn't bad. It's the withdrawal from the world where they get it wrong. So that's the second type. We, so the first type, Christians that judge the world, they relate to the world by judging it. Christians that relate to the world by avoiding the world. And then lastly, uh, this third type is uh, Christians uh, who mirror the world. And so these types of Christians, uh, their value is they want to be relevant. And this is a good value. They want to be able to engage people and be relevant to the people they are around so that they can introduce them to Jesus. But too often what can happen is in their zeal to be relevant to the world, they can just reflect the world's values back to them. So they're just agreeing with the, uh, what the world has to say or uh, finding themselves living in the same systems of the world and adopting the world's values in their desire to be relevant. But what they're simply doing is instead of reflecting Jesus to people, they're just reflecting the world back to itself. They're more discipled by the world's values instead of the values of Jesus. And... I did a little exercise uh, with, uh, with some small groups in our church when I did a talk on this, and I, I asked everyone to go out into a breakout and think through, all right, so first of all, to think through which one of these they're most tempted to be like in terms of how they relate to the world. Like, are you most tempted to judge the world, avoid the world, or mirror the world? Now, the first time I heard this message, and maybe you're like this, I heard this, I just kept on thinking of Christians I knew that were in each type which shows I have the judging problem, right? <laughs> uh, but what I want us to do today is think about for a minute about that question, which is, which one of these either am I, I'm someone who judges the world or avoids the world or is just mirroring the world, or am I most, most likely to be tempted by? You might be thinking, yep, I know someone like that, but I want you to think, what is it in me that's like that? Um, and 
the guy in my group shared, oh, I do all three. And he was the first one to go. I was like, okay, this guy's really honest. This is gonna, we're going to get a level of transparency here that we wouldn't have otherwise get, gotten if he uh, hadn't gone first. And as he was talking, I was realizing, whoa, I got all three too. But I would say in particular, um, the one that I'm tempted with is to mirror the world. And the reason I know this is because I'm on a basketball team. I'm a pastor. So uh, my job is to be largely within a, a Christian circle. Right? I'm, preaching, I'm serving, I'm trying to serve the church, and I can find sometimes that I church planted because I wanted people to know Jesus, but I'm not hanging out with anyone that doesn't know Jesus. So I joined a basketball team at our local YMCA, and I've been playing with these guys a number of years and been able to build some relationships there and also have a lot of fun. But I realized I just talk about whatever the guys want to talk about. Like, they want to talk about sports, I'll talk about sports. They want to talk about work, I'll talk about work. Why? Because I want to be relevant to them. And I want to just make things comfortable between all of us. And so I'm mirroring back to them the things they want to value. And when I heard this message, I thought the Holy Spirit convicted me. I was like, you know what? I don't know how to, like, bring up Jesus. Like, how do you bring up Jesus at the end of a basketball game? It's just a really awkward time to bring up Jesus. But I was like, you know what I can do? I can ask spiritual questions. They all know I'm a pastor. I at least got that out there, right? Um, and I was like, I just need to find opportunities when we're chatting to ask them questions that might make them think about spiritual things or listening questions like what's, what's your own spiritual journey been like, things like that. And so I know for me, I'm working on not just reflecting back to people um, what they want to hear. Um, so if we think about these three common ways uh, and unhelpful ways Christians often engage with the world, we then want to be thinking about, but how does Jesus want to engage with the world, right? Because um, I'm going to just make some assumptions about Jason's leadership and uh, discipleship values here, but I imagine Jason and many of you here would love to be a church that accurately reflects who Jesus is to Harlem. Is that a safe assumption that I'm making there? Like, if you, if New Hope Church was known for being, like, the Jesus Church. That would be an awesome thing. Hope of Jesus. Yes. All right, great. So we're all on the same page here. I just need a little feedback every night. If you want to nod your head or if you come from a certain church background where you say amen, that's fine too. Um, and if uh, from where we read in Matthew, that, that portion of Scripture is taken from Jesus' first teaching that he gave to his disciples. Guys that realized they had some sort of need that Jesus could meet, and they decided to follow him. They decided to start spending time with him. And that's kind of what we're doing here. That's how Jason was leading worship today, reminding us, like, we're here to be with Jesus. Like, that's the number one thing about church is the opportunity in our crazy lives to pause for a moment, breathe, and say, Jesus, we're just here for you. We have some type of need we've identified in ourselves that we believe you can fill, and we're just going to hang out with you on a Sunday morning. And we can actually do that every day. You can start your day just hanging out with Jesus. You can take a lunch break and hang out with Jesus. You can talk to Jesus while I got to walk through Central Park this morning for a few minutes. That was fun. You know, like, I could have talked to Jesus. How cool. I should have done that. I could have said I talked to Jesus in Central Park. I missed my chance. All right. And this is the first, back to the text, this is the first message Jesus is giving to those that wanted to follow him, that identified their need for them. And he begins with these famous beatitudes, these blessed are you. And I believe what he's doing as he begins this message is he begins by speaking into who the disciples are. 
And he begins by saying, you're those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? What I've been talking about already. You've identified, you've identified a poverty of spirit that exists in you. You've identified you have a, a need for God. You have a, a need for me. And I want to tell you something, that if you feel that need, if you feel like giving up, if you feel like tapping out, if you feel like only, some, only something outside of yourself is going to get you through this life, then you're blessed, Jesus says. Like, you here are blessed if you feel that poverty of spirit. If, if you're feeling really great about your spiritual walk today, you're not blessed. But if you are here today, like, I really need God. I really need a breakthrough in my life. I really need to know God is real. Jesus said you're in a blessed place. Now, when you say it like that, it's really hard to believe, isn't it? But that's where faith is required. So Jesus speaks into who they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed um, are, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And that's not just a, a, a righteousness of morality in the, in the Hebrew, that, in, in the Jewish understanding of that word for righteousness, it included a social justice component, a justice in terms of how we relate to others as well as in our relationship with God. Blessed are those who mourn are grieving over loss and things that have have gone wrong in their life, grieving over choices that they've made. He says, you're blessed. If you're here to be with Jesus and you're experiencing grief over things that have happened in your life, Jesus says, you're blessed. You're in the right place. He's going to comfort you. And so Jesus is changing the disciples' understanding of what it means to be religious if we even want to use that word. Because the religious wouldn't have been people that mourned publicly. They wouldn't have considered themselves poor in spirit. They would have considered themselves having it all together because they were doing a good job of keep, keeping the law. And Jesus is subverting that and saying, this is not what following me is about. And that's not the blessed way of life. This is a way of life. This is what my disciples are going to be known for, their need for me. But in that beginning section where Jesus is interesting, uh, introducing these Beatitudes, he also inserts something that I find really fascinating. It's the third Beatitude, and he says, blessed are the gentle. Now think about this. The third thing Jesus says, he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, ta- speaking about our need. And then the next thing he says is, blessed are the gentle. Now, if you're known as someone that is gentle, that you're known for that because of what? You have relationship with other people. So if, I, if I'm never in relationship with anyone, if I, I just live out on my own, then no one, no one can ever experience my gentleness. But gentleness is needed in the, how we relate to others. So sometimes we relate to others and they feel judged. Sometimes we relate to others and people feel like that person doesn't want to spend time with me. That person would rather not have to be talking to me right now. Avoidance. Sometimes we hang out with people and you, or you hang out with someone and you might p- feel like this person is just flattering me. This person is just telling me what I want to hear. And we don't really like, there's a piece of us that likes us like that, but really we don't want friends that just tell us what we want to hear. We want f- friends who will tell us what we need to hear. But Jesus says the third thing he wants his followers to be identified with is how they treat people. And he wants 
them to treat people gently. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or sociologist or any of those things to know that in our world right now, in America, people are not treating each other gently. Can I get an amen? Is that, is that true? Like, they're not treating each other gently on the streets, and like COVID made that worse. People are avoiding people. People don't want to be interrupted. People don't want to be bothered. It's just like, let me get where I need to go, where I feel safe. And we know politically, it's just a hot mess, right? So I don't need to get into that, but it is a hot mess. And no one is treating each other with gentleness. It's, it's polarized, it's divisive, it's demanding. On the left and in the right, there's a, a spirit of judgment and criticalness that pervades our uh, society. And you either have to be uh, in 100% agreement or else you're the enemy. And it works both ways, coming from the light, right and left. At least I see that manifesting. And Jesus is saying, I want you, as followers of Jesus, to be known for your gentleness. This is, like, amazing to me. In fact, Jesus goes so far to say that those who are gentle will inherit the earth. Now, he's, he's probably speaking about the new heaven and the new earth which will be marked by gentleness. So those who will shepherd, those who will give stewardship of the new earth to will be those who treated people in this life with gentleness. Just think about that for a moment. Future abundance, future reward, future responsibility in the kingdom of God, according to what Jesus said here, is going to be based on how gently you treated others. This is really important for me as a pastor because uh, I, I'm in situations all the time with people with need or people making demands on me, and it can be really hard to be gentle sometimes. Jason doesn't have this problem, but I do. But this is what Jesus wants with us. Now, how does this relate to the big point of my message? It relates in this way. Early on, after establishing our need, Jesus then says, following me has everything to do with how you engage with the world. How you follow me has everything to do with being gentle with those I've placed in your relational circles, with those you work with, with those you live with, with those you walk by on your block, with those who annoy you on social media. How you respond to those people and whether or not you respond to them with gentleness is, is what it means to be my disciple. And so what we're seeing there is Jesus is transitioning his talk from who you are on the inside to how you relate to people on the outside. This is why the picture of the cross is so important for our understanding of discipleship. The cross has a vertical element in our relationship with God, that we understand that on the cross, Jesus was opening up a pathway for us to be forgiven of our sins and have right relationship with God so that we could come to him in our poverty and in our sin and in our failure, in our grief and in our mourning. And through the cross, Jesus was saying, those who come to the cross with their need have right relationship with God. That's the vertical nature. That's our identity in Christ. We have right relationship with God because what if Jesus did on the cross, but the cross also has a horizontal dimension to it, doesn't it? And right here in the Beatitudes, we see Jesus speaking to that horizontal uh, part of it, that whoever would want to follow me, whoever would come to me for life, would then need to pick up his cross 
each day and follow me. And that following Jesus in the each day has everything to do with how we relate to people. Think about this for a minute if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, the big first section after the Beatitudes, is all how you relate to others in personal relationships. The first thing it deals with is anger. You get angry at who? People. All right? The next thing he deals with is lust. We lust after people. All right? Then it has to do with oaths and promises. We make promises to sometimes ourselves, but most often people. You're getting it. And so that whole first next section, the big section of the Sermon on the Mount, is all Jesus telling us, showing us what he expects and how we relate to people. Uh, Another way of thinking about it is how you could live like he lived because Jesus was very gentle with those particularly who had big needs. Jesus always kept his promises. Jesus loved his enemies instead of being angry with them. Jesus didn't need to get married to fulfill his physical desires. He didn't lust after others. Then the Sermon on the Mount goes on. It talks about our relationship with the poor, how we use our money, and an expectation that we use it to be a blessing to those who do not have what we have. And then the Sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus telling us not to judge others. And then Jesus summarized his whole message with ends it, summarizes this whole first three chapters of Matthew, the largest section of teaching, I believe, uh, in the Gospels that's presented to us. And the first one he gives to his disciples, and he ends it with the golden rule, which is treat others the way you want to be treated. What does that mean? The horizontal dimension of the cross, which puts a demand on our lives, which tells us that following Jesus has everything to do how we engage with the world and how we treat the world. Now back to the beginning of the message for a minute. As Christians, we're failing at this. Because we're judging, avoiding, and mirroring. What's the solution? All right, all that was a setup to try to to land us here at the close on the passage of scripture that was read to us because Jesus says this in verse 7. Blessed are the, Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And maybe you're picking up on it there. But if our temptation is to show judgment, Jesus says, calls us to show mercy. If our temptation is to avoid the world, Jesus tells us to be peacemakers in the world, which means we're going to have to get involved with people. We're going to have to get involved in the work of reconciling people one to another. It won't, we won't be able, and to God, we won't be able to avoid the world. And then Jesus says, blessed are the those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, we're also going to have to stand for truth in the world. We're not just able to mirror the world's values back to it, but we're going to have to be able to show and teach the values of Jesus that we're talking about today, okay? Then Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill 
cannot be hidden. See, we lose our saltiness when we judge a void in mirror. We become useless to the world. But when we engage the world in Jesus-like ways, we become his light. We become like him on earth. Instead of judgment, we show mercy. Instead of avoidance, we befriend the world. Instead of mirroring the world, we are willing to speak truth to it. Early on uh, in the first couple years of our church plant, we were a fairly young church and uh, mostly uh, people in their 20s and uh, fairly uh, what many in Boston would call a conservative church. And a young man uh, who was in college uh, who was involved in a homosexual lifestyle started coming to our church. And a couple weeks after coming to our church, he started wearing a bright purple t-shirt to church every week. And it said, gay, okay, with a question mark on it. And when I saw him walk into the church uh, the, the, with that t-shirt the first time, first I was like, what am I going to do about this? Like, do I need to ask him not to wear that shirt? No, that doesn't seem like the Jesus-like, that doesn't, speaking of living like Jesus, that doesn't seem like something Jesus would do, ask, ask someone to change who they are before they, they come to him. I was like, you know what, I think I just, this is a public gathering, I just, I just need to welcome him. But then I was like, oh my gosh, is someone in our church going to say something to him about his t-shirt? Are they going to say, like, maybe they're going to do it in the nice Christian kind of way, like, hello, brother. We don't wear those kind of t-shirts around here. Like, I, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And so we got through the first week. I didn't know if anyone had said something uh, wrong to him or mean to him or corrected him in any way. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if he was going to come back. I didn't know what kind of experience I'd been. The second, uh, the week after that, he comes back and he's wearing the same t-shirt again. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, at least, at least, you know, he didn't get, you know, no one said anything bad enough to him that kept him from coming back to church. I was like, I wonder what's going to happen this week. He comes back a third week. He's still wearing the same t-shirt. And um, he wore it three weeks in a row, then he stopped wearing it, which I was kind of relieved about. And he kept coming. And I got lunch with him uh, a while, a couple months later. And I was just asking him, like, what's your experience um, at our church been like? And he was sharing to me about what, what he was going through and trying to under, understand who Jesus was and the context of his lifestyle and everything like that. And so I was just kind of helping them. And I just said, how have your experience at church been like? He said, David, um, it's been great. And I need to tell you something. If anyone at your church had told me not to wear that T-shirt when I came in, I would have left your church. He said, I was wearing that T-shirt because I was hoping that someone would say something to me so I would have an excuse not to come back to church. And I share, and he went on to become a follower of Jesus. Um, his life got totally changed. But I share that story with you about the power of showing mercy. Jesus met the woman who was caught in an adultery with mercy. And then he said, go and sin no more. It's not that he mirrored the world's values back to her. It's that he met her with mercy. He overlooked her sin in the moment so that she could be welcomed to him. Then he said, go and stand, sin no more. Then he stood for tr truth. And we need to be a church to be a place where people find mercy and grace first. We need to be a church like the church Rosaria Butterfield, who was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University um, and a, a staunch atheist. We need to be a church like the Presbyterian church she started going to uh, with an 
elderly couple who was pastoring, uh, pastoring it who invited her into her home week into their home week after week for over a year and it was through the hospitality of that family that she became a follower of Jesus Christ and spoke publicly in her one of uh, her first classes of the year about how Jesus changed her life she wrote a book called the gospel comes with a house key how hospitality is essential to following Jesus we need to become peacemakers and I want to close just by asking you a couple questions do you show mercy to those that carry different values than you two who do who do you eat with who do you spend time with are you opening up your home or your who you have coffee with to people that aren't like you like that older pastoral couple did for Rosaria Butterfield? Is it your house? Is it your community groups? Is your gr- your small groups that meet in people's homes at different times during the year? Are, are those open to people who, who don't know Jesus? Would they be welcomed there? Would they be befriended there? And then lastly, am I willing to mention the name of Jesus? As I greet others with mercy and gentleness. As I learn to befriend people who share different values than me, am I also willing then to share about my own need for Jesus and how he began to meet the needs that I felt in my life? And Jesus lived a life of mercy and gentleness and care for others, but in the end, what got him killed was the claim, his claim that he was the son of God. In the end, we will face persecution sometimes when we share with others that Jesus really is the Son of God. He's the anointed one, that he calls us to follow him. There'll be some that don't want to follow him, and that's okay. But it doesn't mean we turn to judgment and avoidance. It means we continue to love, we continue to show mercy, and we continue to stand for truth. And so I want to challenge you as a church community Become a people that meet others where they were at with mercy, not judgment. Share meals with those outside your faith or cultural preference. Embrace friendship and not avoidance. And be willing to ask spiritual questions and articulate the story of Jesus and how he changed your life where you have opportunity. If you do this, you'll, you'll do well. And I think you will continue to be just the incredibly diverse church um, that is representing Jesus so well to our world. Be a church that engages the world. Amen? Amen.